0: Hello everybody, I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Triumph Connects, a new podcast for the Triumph community.
1: The middle class, because of this wealth at risk, at risk wealth, increasingly has what we call great expectations, that governments will both promote this wealth in good times and protect it in bad People want bailouts for themselves, and they want wealth protection for themselves, but not necessarily for everyone else.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 6 of Triumph Connects. If you're enjoying the podcast, it'd be great if you could subscribe, give us a rating, and or share the link. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Andrew Walter to discuss his new book, called The Wealth Effect, How the Great Expectations of the Middle Class Have Changed the Politics of Banking Crises. He co-authored this book with Geoffrey Twyroth of the London School of Economics. In the book, Andrew and Geoffrey try to answer a question, and the question is this. What happens to politics when the majority of households in a given polity have ever-increasing household wealth that is highly leveraged and exposed to risks associated with the financialization of those assets. And the members of those middle-class households rely more and more on this private wealth to fund things that would in the past have been provided by the state. I think you'll discover that this is an essential question to understand our politics today. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Andrew and am convinced you will too. Andrew is one of the founding academic directors of the Triumph degree program, and students of the program will know him. He's joined us and taught every year of the program since its inception. He joins us these days in our Shanghai module. Andrew is currently a professor of international relations in the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Prior to joining the University of Melbourne, Andrew was a Reader in the International Political Economy at the London School of Economics and that's where, of course, we first met. Before joining the LSE, Andrew was a Fellow of St. Anthony's College in Oxford and a University Lecturer in International Relations at Oxford. He's also been a visiting professor at the Institute of Defence and Strategic Studies in Singapore, the University of British Columbia the International University of Japan, and at the Pacific Council on International Policy at the University of Southern California, Los Angeles. All of these appointments reflect that Andrew is one of the smartest guys you're going to ever meet. His knowledge about international political economy is second to none. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Walter. Andrew Walter, welcome to the podcast. Matt Malford, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you know, it's uh, one of the freedoms that I have uh, as a host is I get to invite friends to come on and uh, you're definitely in that hmm. category, one of my great friends. And uh, so full disclosure here, I will try to be as honest in my assessment of your work, which is fantastic anyway, but uh, just want to let everybody know uh, that in the sense of, you know, when some people go, oh, I know that guy. That, that's, that's what I'm saying now. Yeah, I really know Andrew Walter, who is the... Uh, Great author, along with Jeffrey, and is it Schwirrock? Schwiroth. Schwiroth. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, it's a oh, it's a you hard can't one be to bring here out. today. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, the book's called The Wealth Effect, and it's a wonderful example in my mind of kind of social science research at its best. So it's sophisticated quantitative and qualitative analysis across centuries, many many countries. It's a super ambitious project uh, that you guys have pulled off with flying colors and in fact it's not just me that thinks this the book won the 2020 STI Roken Prize for a Comparative Social Science Research awarded by the International Science Council in Paris so congratulations.
1: Yeah, thanks. That was that was a very nice thing to get after all it had, uh, it was about 10 well 8 years or so in the making so uh, it was nice to
0: get it. So it was ambitious, but it also meant that uh, the project was a long one. Well, it's. I mean, you can tell that by the reading of the book and the amount of, the amount of analysis in it. It must have taken a long time, and it doesn't surprise me that it was eight years. Mm. But I, I, have a, I have a little bit of suggestion for you. I, I think you got the subtitle wrong. So your, your subtitle is How the Great Expectations of the Middle Class Have Changed the Politics of Banking Crises. But, you know, my friend, I think this is a little bit too humble. I, I think you should have just stopped at how the great expectations of the middle class have changed politics, full stop. Yeah, Because I, I think that this that, that what you find is is very profound. And I think that it, and we'll talk about this uh, later in our conversation, but I, I think that it, it goes way beyond just banking crises. But uh, that's that's my suggestion for you.
1: I think that's right, Matt. Uh, so I'd I agree with that. Thanks for the uh, the implicit <laughs> compliment uh, in that, though. What uh, because we we didn't have a lot of empirical evidence that uh, you know applied the ideas beyond the realm of interventions by governments and the way that those have changed over time in financial crises. We didn't want to push too far in that direction, but we're certainly uh, thinking about ways to apply the idea in
0: other domains. So I see a whole research program here uh, in front of you. Yeah, keep me busy for a long time. So the book lays out a, a very sophisticated and, uh, to my simple mind, complicated but clear argument. And for me, uh, it made sense to me to kind of break it into steps. Uh, so the first step, I just want to get right into it here. You talk about um, a wealth effect and that the size and composition of kind of wealth has changed through time for individual households. Um, Can you tell me first about how that size and composition has changed? Yeah, so this is part
1: of a set of factors that we think of as essentially material factors. So simply describing in the book the way that across democracies, and the book is all about uh, democracies only, Uh, we can go later into uh, definitions of democracy if you want, but leaving that aside, um, it's all about how this set of material factors across democracies has completely transformed the size of the wealth that and the assets uh, that the middle class holds over time. The middle class in wealth terms really didn't exist, uh, certainly not in the late 19th century when something like fi- um, 5% of um, the population, say in advanced countries like Britain and the United States, owned almost all of the wealth that we think of today. So clarify,
0: clarify just for listeners what you mean by wealth versus income.
1: Yeah, so income uh, flows um, are usually associated with employment. Uh, Obviously one can uh, also get income flows from wealth. Uh, So characters in Jane Austen's novels might own bonds and so on. Um, Typically they're very wealthy aristocrats uh, or they might from assets like land uh, achieve some income flows. Um, But increasingly what we saw as the 20th century began rolled on, we saw the emergence of the middle class in income terms. And a lot of economic and political analysis, uh, I'm a political economist, by the way, as uh, as I guess many, uh, at least some of the listeners will be aware, much of the analysis of the middle class was understood in wealth and employment terms. So when we think about innovation and in economic policy uh, around uh, the mid-20th century, particularly John Maynard Keynes, we think about economic stabilisation as essentially the stabilisation of income flows, particularly associated with employment rather than wealth. Right, And that was the key innovation of Keynesian sort of managed uh, economies in the mid 20th century, crucially important for the understanding of, of the way in which government should intervene from that point on and, and, and failed catastrophically to do so in the Great Depression. we think of the middle class in slightly different terms. That is, uh, of course, um, middle class households across democracies all over the world, uh, income is absolutely crucial and typically employment based income is absolutely crucial to keep them in the middle class. But from around, um, well, particularly from around uh, the period after the Second World War in most advanced democracies, we see the gradual emergence of a middle wealth-owning class in the sense that increasingly people gained assets, uh, above all housing assets, and right. so rates of home ownership increased extraordinarily in most democracies. And secondly, uh, increasingly pensions, and often defined benefit pensions. That is, everyone knew what they were going to get when they retired in terms of the income flows from uh, those pension assets. So they're the two key ones. Obviously, people have financial assets, uh, savings in, bank, in banks and um, insured and uninsured deposits and so on build up too. And people sometimes hold financial assets outside of pensions. But for the middle class, uh, it's housing above all across most democracies, increasingly from the 1970s and secondly, pensions.
0: And the pensions, I suppose, have become more tied. This is a change argument you make as well. They're, they're no longer these defined benefit pensions. So they become tied. This is more of this kind of financialization of wealth. And so maybe you can say a little bit about that. So, so first wealth, as I understand it, wealth starts to increase in the middle classes. It has these two characteristics, largely housing yeah. with second pensions, but then the pensions start to change as well. That's right.
1: And sorry, just to finish off what we call firstly the size effect. Um, So on on average, in real terms, in 2018 dollars, uh, let's say U.S. dollars, um, on average across the advanced democracies, the average adult owned about 50,000 U.S. dollars in assets in 1970. By the eve of the global financial crisis, so 2007, they own something like $180,000 on average in real terms. So that's accounting for inflation And currency uh, changes over that period. So on average, we're seeing something like a three and a half fold increase in the real aggregate wealth. So that's the size effect across advanced democracies. It is incredible. And people just don't understand how much richer by 2007 people were on average in the middle class uh, compared to the previous generation. The second thing is, as you just asked, the composition effect. And it's this, it's this growing attachment of these assets and this wealth in particular to financial markets, which of course, over this period and particularly since the Thatcher Reagan era of deregulated financial markets are increasingly attached to financial markets in important ways that raise the riskiness uh, of the value of these assets. So the prices of these assets, housing, but also um, pension assets As we see this massive shift across the industrialized world, in particular, leading on this away from defined benefit pensions towards so-called defined contribution pensions, where what you get out of your pension ultimately is very much dependent increasingly on the market price of the assets in your pension portfolio. is usually managed by big institutional managers. So um, in other words, what other authors have described as financialization increasingly characterizes the way that middle class wealth has this growing embeddedness in, in this financialization process. And that makes that wealth increasingly at risk.
0: Okay so interesting so I'm a middle class person I become massively more wealthy than I was in the past yep but at the same time I that wealth is exposed in ways that it, it never was before so I'm more yep. wealthy but I have much more I, now I have much more to lose and I'm in a more risky environment yeah is that fair
1: Abs- absolutely um, okay. and yeah, so, so the, the risk and, and thus the anxiety, uh, that people have, you know, I mean, if you like me, you've Possibly check the value of your uh, institutional funds or whatever your pension assets. Um, and uh, th- so, technology plays a part too in ramping up this anxiety. And I and I think another set of policy innovations since around the time of Thatcher and Reagan also add to that anxiety. In that we see the deregulation and the quasi privatization of big. Um, Crucial uh, services uh, associated with middle class status, like healthcare, education, um, most most dramatically and obviously in countries like the United States uh, and Britain, where we see the price of education going up and uh, the price of healthcare, the price of old aged care, and all of these sorts of things. The risks um, that middle class households are facing. Not only is this wealth, in other words, larger; it's more at stake. It's more risk uh, prone in that it's linked to potentially unstable financial markets. It's also more needed as the state has backed away from sort of price stability commitments on, and key middle-class goods like education, healthcare, old age care, and these sorts of things.
0: So that sounds a little bit like a scary mixture. And then mm-hmm. you add into that what you call the democratization of leverage. So not only do, do, does this happen, but we To kind of add fuel to these anxiety and and risk pools, we allow uh, leverage in a way that we didn't before. So can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so this is a concept uh, that we take from Oscar, uh, Jorda uh, and, and others. Uh, the democratization of leverage is something that's been going on again for decades, but it really ramps up in the 60s, 70s and 80s as the home ownership society becomes uh, something that uh, many politicians uh, see uh, as a positive contribution to uh, an engaged uh, so-called asset-owning uh, democracy. So uh, leverage is the means by which many middle class houses uh, households, of course, acquire housing assets, uh, because typically, unlike the very wealthy, the super rich, uh, the, the former aristocracy, people need to borrow in order to buy houses. And as, as that middle class demand for housing in particular ramps up, we start to see this um this steady increase and indeed acceleration of housing assets pr- the prices of housing across many advanced democracies and many emerging market democracies too so the cost of housing is rising housing is also a positional good um, and you know people want to get in the right kinds of areas the right kinds of suburbs with the right kinds of schools otherwise they might have to send their kids to expensive private schools and these sorts of middle classic middle class concerns that you know people sitting around dinner party uh, tables in in London or New York or San Francisco or Paris or wherever it might be yeah. have been talking about really since the 1990s. So you see this reflected in literature, novels and so on. Um, So house prices are being ramped up, the the availability of credit as the banking system is deregulated. We see the big bang in the UK after 1986 and we see similar movements elsewhere, first in the United States, but the access um, of households to credit is being expanded. This in turn allows them to purchase housing assets and we see quite a sharp increase in leverage uh, across the middle class. Uh, quite scary-looking graphics. Uh, if we could show a graphic on a podcast, um, it's a pretty steep, w- upwardly um, rising, steep positive, uh, positively rising line uh, over time. The leverage, that is, the amount of debt that households have relative to income, relative to asset, um, and and other measures, uh, is rising quite sharply from the nineteen seventies
0: to the two thousands. So, so interestingly enough, th- this you would expect in some ways this leverage or this debt to make people nervous in a way because they now owe owe all of this money. Um, But in a sense, they don't get nervous because they make an assumption that things like house prices are always going to go up and that they're going to be protected and, and et cetera. So... This, this this leads to an argument you make about the state's commitments to stability in this system because it all it all depends on that if I, if I think you know uh, if I think that this if, if I had a realistic image of the real risk I was being exposed to as a middle class household, I might not take that plunge to try to to leverage my my existing wealth up to get all of those things you've talked about. so how does that play out in in government action? I mean particularly you talked about the democratization of leverage, it seems to me that the state had a huge part in that as a policy choice to attempt to increase home ownership. And the way that they could do that is through leverage. But can you spin out or, or talk a little bit about these commitments to stability?
1: Yeah, so so ultimately where all this is leading, and uh, here's a plea for our subtitle to retain our subtitle in the book, um, <laughs> ultimately where all this is leading is the idea um, that the middle class, because of this wealth at risk, at risk wealth, increasingly has what we call great expectations that governments will both promote this wealth in good times and protect it in bad now, the first two things that we've talked about, uh, the financialization of wealth, the, the massive increase in levels of real wealth per capita, the composition and the attachment of that wealth to financial assets, the democratization of leverage, which means that a lot of those assets, particularly the housing assets above all, um, are risky assets in the sense that if the price falls, you're potentially in serious trouble. You could be in negative, so-called negative equity territory. yeah. Yep. Um, And the third aspect um, of that ramping up of expectations in the populace, that this middle-class wealth-owning segment in in advanced and emerging democracies, is what we call um, the growing state commitment to financial stabilisation. So the idea here is that governments, particularly after the Great Depression, so this is something that happens well before the wealth effect in its material aspects, which we've been talking about so so far accelerate uh, and and after 1970 or so so well before this we get states particularly after the Great Depression and the catastrophic financial failures um, that led to the Great Depression in the in the early 1930s governments increasingly come out of that committing to financial stabilization uh, in a way that they never had before saying we cannot allow this to happen. First Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the United States and the whole um, you know all of the the banking regulation deposit insurance that came out of the new deal uh, in the United States. That's where it happens first but it starts to get replicated in a number of other advanced democracies sometimes in different ways not only through financial regulation in the 1950s and 60s but also through uh, party program you know, electoral program commitments to financial stability to control the banking sector in some parts of the world, like France, for example, they essentially nationalize their banking sector. So the, so the commitment to financial stabilization is there a bit more implicit than it was, say, in the case of FDR's New Deal regulations. But it's still there in that banks are now state-owned. People are not going to lose money if they hold if they hold deposits in banks, the banking system is not going to collapse because the state is standing behind it. So, so that's that's happening well before this. Um, escalation in middle-class wealth that we describe in the book, particularly from the 1970s. So that's a policy pre-commitment, but it's also one that continually gets updated and ramped up as financial instability re-emerges after the very stable years uh, associated with the so-called Bretton Woods system, when we had very repressed financial systems in the 50s and 60s. As that begins to open up uh, in the 70s and 80s, we get the re-emergence of banking crises in Britain, in the United States and in other countries. And and so these prior commitments to financial stabilisation are re-updated. Deposit insurance is extended far more than in the past. Every every crisis we have, governments typically extend deposit insurance. You may remember in the UK, um, I think in 2008, it was £33,000 per bank deposit. Across the EU now, it's uh, I think it's two hundred and fifty thousand euros, and and that was increased dramatically by all governments uh, during the crisis. In the United States, it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars now. Gosh! So 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 these commitments, constantly updated, are sending powerful signals to people that if the worst comes to the worst and the and the wealth gets threatened, governments will be there.
0: It's interesting. So if we go to the and, and again, this isn't my area, so I, I might be wrong. And please correct me where I am. But you, you have the Great Depression, people lose deposits. And that seems to be the really dramatic thing. People are losing the money that they had in the banks. And as you said, the state says, this just cannot happen anymore. We need to have people have faith in their banks, and their bank deposits, et cetera, et cetera. And so they come in and they make a kind of structural change where we're going to protect the assets, but the banks have to behave in these following ways. So a regulatory regime gets in place that will, it's kind of like a trade-off. We will uh, have insurance for the deposits, but you can't do X, Y, and Z because we need the more stability. And then in the 70s and 80s, you take away those regulatory things saying about the stability, and then you that engenders banking crises. But at that point, we're so committed to defending the deposits of people that they have to continue to increase because now we have all of this kind of unintended consequences of the protection of the deposits at the first point was fueling this wealth. People put the wealth into the banks and then the banks then have to protect it because now people have this expectation of stability. Even when the kind of guardrails, the kind of regulatory regime that kept the banking system more stable are removed. Is, is, that, a, is that a kind of grand narrative that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you were if you were writing or if you read economic textbooks on this, they will say that the regulation was required an important complement uh, to the stabilization commitments uh, that that you. And I just described because of the concern of moral hazard. If you protect, if you're protecting the banking sector from its worst excesses, potentially, um, the fear uh, among um, many economists is that uh, that will uh, basically make both the banks and their customers increasingly risk-prone. That is, they'll take risks if if there's a kind of safety net. Uh, underneath the financial system, so the the ramping up of regulation is a crucial component of that to limit that so-called moral hazard problem.
0: Yeah, and traditionally, what you'd argue. So one of the things I love about the book and and your work in general is is it you you don't pretend that the world started in like 1990. So you you go back a long ways and. A natural counterweight in the past when wealth wasn't as widely distributed was kind of democratic, right? So the bulk of people would say, wait a minute, you can't bail out these small number of, of asset owners with all of our tax money. And that seems like the natural counterweight to these expensive bailouts would be taxpayers. And this seems particularly true of people, as more people receive or are dependent on public sector, or their public sector beneficiaries and, and who fear austerity. And then you get their implementers, all the state uh, employees, all of the bureaucracies that implement these public sector beneficiary systems. They both expand a lot in the 20th century, right? Yeah. And they should be strong. They should be a counterweight. But why don't they provide an effective counterweight to now these kind of smaller as a percentage, even though the middle class assets have gone up, still those asset owners aren't necessarily the majority of people, or I don't know, but it seems like you would have a a kind of traditional or natural political opposition to this. So why why don't we see that? Yeah.
1: I mean, the short answer is uh, that the literature that emphasizes that voters are taxpayers, first of all, and and thus concerned about uh, government uh, bailouts, let's say, of, of firms that really ought to have known better and took excessive risks, and and therefore ought, on a on a market-based um, understanding of sort of Schumpeterian destruction, ought to be allowed to fail. Yeah. Um, the problem with these kinds of arguments is that they treat people as um, as sort of simplistic taxpaying robots, uh, whereas in fact what we find increasingly is that people have multiple identities, uh, multiple interests, often contradictory um they are people are consumers they are typically workers and if we're thinking above all about middle the people in the middle the middle class that increasingly in these advanced democracies um, constitutes the majority. I mean, there are different definitions of the middle class, but in terms of the ones we use, on average, something like 50 to 70% of uh, people by the 1970s can be described as approximately middle class. Most of these people increasingly own houses. Back in the 19th century in Britain, um, in Britain before World War I, less than 20% of people owned houses. Most people were renters. It was the aristocracy that owned property and and the rest rented. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, by the 1970s, it's 60 or so percent in in the United States, which was ahead of everyone else. Uh, something like one third of all people in in the interwar period um, owned their own house. A lot of those people were on land on farms, um, but nevertheless, there was an emerging urban middle class too that had some home ownership, and they did lose houses in a number of cases and farms, of course, in the Great Depression. Mm. But across the advanced world, in other words, um, people have these multiple identities. Yes, of course. They're taxpayers, Um, but they're also consumers. They're often, particularly in the middle class, uh, they are employees who need income to service the debts increasingly that they're using to purchase housing assets with they are people accumulating pensions as well. So increasingly they're asset owners. So they're taking on these multiple personalities and identities and where that leaves an individual, I think is pretty conflicted. So you might say with one side of your personality or interests, yeah, I, uh, I'm not that happy with bailouts. Um, and if you interview people um, as people have done in surveys, you say, what do you think about the government intervening to bail out failing companies, particularly those nasty Wall Street bankers and you know rich London banks? and all the, you know, oh, I hate the idea. But, you know, if you ask them, um, should, if you had more than £33,000 in a bank account in the UK, I had friends in London, you probably did too, with more much more than £33,000 in a single bank account. And, and they came up to me and said, um, uh, I think I've just learned that not all of this is actually insured, Andrew, what am I going to do? Because I damn well want my money back and it's the government's responsibility to give me all my money back. In exactly. one case, 150,000 pounds. Yeah. I said, well, sorry, they're not, you know, they're not obliged to. But, you know, this guy was also a taxpayer. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a kind of foil in our book and I don't, I don't like to pick on people who may, <laughs> Um. but the, there's a, there's an important book and a good book by uh, Guillermo Rosas, another political science, scientist who published a book uh, called bailouts, um, bailouts, and something I'm now blanking on the title. But um, anyway, uh, Rosas's book, published in 2008, made the argument essentially that you just made. That is, in democracies, the taxpayer interest is so powerful that it's going to push back against bailouts. And so, representative democracies, unlike autocracies where you know the system is shot through with cronyism and corruption, it's autocracies that will have Bailouts Bailouts are cronyistic where vested interests like powerful banks and, and connected companies get bailed out, just like in Indonesia, say, uh, you know, under Suharto. Um, but in democracies, there's powerful taxpayer interest and increasingly middle-class uh, beneficiaries of welfare state services are going to push back on bailouts because they will be fiscally unsustainable and will lead to rising taxes. Um, so Roses publishes this book in 2008, Eight, just on the just when the global financial crisis is breaking, and and basically Jeff and I say, hold on a minute, you know, all these democracies are bailing out left, right, and centre, and indeed often far more extensively than autocracies. Yeah. Something else is going on here, and the taxpayer interest uh, that's right at the core of Rosa's argument
0: clearly is not sufficient as a as a counterweight. Fascinating. So. I love this idea of multiple personalities and lots of things. So I'm a middle class, uh, as you said, middle class taxpayer. I I say, uh, well, screw that! I don't want my taxes to go to those big, uh, those big Wall Street and and you know London bankers. Look at their... and and then you get endless stories in the press about how much money they make and the obscene lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Mm.
0: But then you say, well, that would mean that we would kick off a banking crisis, your house would be worth less, there wouldn't, because there wouldn't be lending, house prices would collapse, and your pension would go down. People then kind of swallow the pain and say, "Well," and in fact, they say, well, my taxes might go up a bit to pay mm-hmm. for this, but the, the cost benefit analysis, even if they're kind of rationally, you know, as you said, these kind of robotic people, they could say, well, let's say my taxes go up by 10,000 a year. But if, I, if we don't do this, my asset value is going to go down by 300000 It yeah. doesn't make any sense not to support this or at least pressure the government to do this.
1: That's right, and I've I've really got very little savings in my bank account, um, and I should have I should have been saving putting away a lot more for retirement. And I, I was really hoping that my housing equity exactly. was essentially going to be my retirement nest egg. And now, and the government is taking away, or at least sending signals that the availability of old age care and uh, public housing, of course, which is really important in the in the Breton Woods post war years, all of those signals that the government is sending I mean that I have to rely on this nest egg, and thus, you know, they they damn well better do everything they can to rescue the housing market. Otherwise, I'm in really
0: deep doo doo. So here's here's one of the interesting conclusions I think. So you know, when the when the financial crisis happened in 2008, some said that kind of financial institutions had captured the regulatory bodies and. And the political actors and they can influence politicians to bail them out when they needed this kind of the evil banking person in control of the government you know as as a puppet master and then more subtly you know other people argued that the banks had consolidated so much and created actors that were just too big to fail so the government then was faced with these things where they would have liked to have them fail but if they failed the whole the whole system would collapse and banks knew that all too well and then they forced governments to bail them out And then this led to this kind of great injustice. But if you're right, your argument is these excessive bailouts are simply the response to old-fashioned democratic pressures. And that it it doesn't, we don't need these uh, kind of selfish evil bankers, uh, as people argue. All we need is politicians responding to their constituent desires. Yeah, so this is essentially a
1: kind of electoral pressure argument uh, that we use, and the way the term that we use is pressure from below rather than above. So a lot of the a lot of the explanations of um, the bailouts that took place. Um, you know, so if if you if Rosas' argument doesn't work uh, anymore when governments are bailing out left, right, and centre in 2007 eight, their whole banking system, even countries like Australia where I'm currently sitting, um, that didn't experience uh, in inverted commas um, a, a banking crisis. Nevertheless, slapped on a blanket government guarantee of all financial sector liabilities just to make sure in 2008 um, that highly leveraged Australian middle-class homeowners and and the rest didn't go under. So the pressures were enormous, even outside of um, the you know the the large number of very crisis-hit countries uh, at that time. Uh, Now, what I wouldn't say is um, that we can just discard the argument um, that was was made by many, many commentators that essentially what this was is capture, what they they call political capture by these financial elites to bail out Wall Street and the city of London and all of the rest, Frankfurt, Paris, uh, uh, Amsterdam, and so on. Um, The list goes on and on. Um, But essentially, this was an elite capture argument that these powerful financial sector in had become so central and so powerful uh, within uh, highly networked, highly financialized economies that governments really had no choice, but to do their bidding. As, as the, the phrase um, that went around at the time said, the, the bankers' profits were privatised, uh, but the losses were socialised by all taxpayers um, and, and governments, of course. Now, we, we don't want to say that our argument is a, is a complete alternative to that argument. Uh, on the contrary, what we would say is that essentially the power of the financial sector of really big financial firms has always been with us. Um, and this was true right going right back into our studies of the 19th century. Big banking crises, financial crises in the 19th century. Financial elites were deeply linked. Think about Britain, you know, how many were represented in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Uh, they they were uh, deeply intimate with government. This was an era um, in which uh, financial elites hardly lacked power. But strikingly, uh, conservative governments, um, Whig governments right through the 19th century in Britain did not bail out their financial sector in the way that they increasingly did from 1974 onwards. Uh, with the first post 1970 banking crisis in the UK. So what has changed is not that financial elites are powerful. They always have been. Um, But that has been insufficient. um, And it, it Crucially, insufficient for business-oriented governments to wear the finan- uh, sorry the political cost of bailing out a powerful set of elites. Um, so, in other words, um, it's this pressure from below, coming from the middle class with uh, increasingly um, at-risk wealth. And expect great expectations that governments ought to protect it, combined with this pressure from above, and in many ways um, the pressure from below, from the middle class, this electoral mass pressure, gives the bankers um, enormous additional political leverage. So, um, because they can say, if you don't bail us out, you you guys are finished, because the middle class
0: is is dead. Well, not, not yeah, us. exactly. So I, I just yeah. uh, in in the way I think about it, you know, let's say I'm sitting in uh, I don't know 1880, and I'm facing a crisis, and and I'm yeah. I go and visit my chum who's the prime minister, and I say, Prime Minister, if you if you don't give me uh, all this money, I'm going to flip this switch, and a bomb's going to go off. But the yeah. but the bomb that went off would only damage a yeah. few people, the top two percent, and it wouldn't change yeah. the electoral politics. Once I'm in a democratic system. I'll take that pain. That's now right. they can come in and say, Mr. Prime Minister, if you don't give me the money, I'm going to flip this switch. And if I flip this switch, it really is going to be financial Armageddon. And the reason this is, so so, as you say, it's not that the banking people have become somehow or that, they, that they're they off the hook, but this just gives them massive amounts of leverage, kind of yeah. a, a kind of a promise of mutual assured destruction that yeah. will that will uh, that will force the government's hand in some ways if we if we go if we come back if we pull back a little bit from this kind of very dramatic <laughs> I, I admit very dramatic setting if i'm a let's say I'm a good government and I'm not captured by these people, and I'm faced with the fact that the middle class has this massive exposure, and there is a banking crisis, you know. I don't know if, you know. In, in some ways we've been talking about these kind of excessive bailouts as a bad thing, but I don't know what choice the state really has at this point, because if they didn't act, so if 2008, the state didn't act to bail out all the depositors and people who are, who are exposed to the financial industry, et cetera, et cetera, all this financialized wealth, it really would have been horrible. And we would have yeah. been in a situation where uh, no one really would have been better off so if we, even if we look at it from a normative point of view, what the state ought to do, given the situation, it's not clear that they ought to do something different. Or, or do you agree? So we see, um,
1: so I think... Governments are still nevertheless, despite um, you know, I think what they really ought to have understood, this material interest of the middle class combined with this massively increased financial sector in places like the UK, the United States, and many others, they ought to have understood um, what you just said. That is, there really was no alternative. But what we find governments, um, governments don't um, actually understand that at the beginning of the crisis. Nor do central banks. So Mervyn King, for example, in the Bank of England, kept talking about the awful moral hazard implications of bailing out banks that were failing. Northern Rock was the first one to go down in the UK um, in, I think, August uh, 2007. And the Bank of England kept talking about, well, this is one of those banks that needs to, you know, the, the ruthless um, logic of the market needs to apply here. We can't be bailing out every bank that gets into trouble. Then all these people started lining up outside Northern Rock branches demanding their money back. And the government eventually having, and this was a labor government, remember, of course, yep, yep. and a labor government under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown that had banned the N-word, that is nationalization, never would be undertaken again because these people were new labor. They were differentiating themselves from the bad old interventionist times of socialism. They'd essentially taken on board the Thatcherite ethic um, of market discipline um, liberalisation, light touch regulation. Gordon Brown had given a big speech in uh, earlier in 2007 on on the the joys of and benefits for all Britons of light touch regulation of the City of London. And so none of them are expecting to nationalise Northern Rock, but they're forced into it by events and by politics. Eventually, you know, the logic of, um, of, of bailouts just uh, eventually becomes overwhelming. But at first, it's quite striking um, that, you know, these politicians are reluctant to accept that political logic. Exactly the same in the Bush administration. They dither for about a year. Basically, in mid-2007, it was already clear that they'd have to essentially nationalize Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in the United States, which they ultimately do take them under so-called conservatorship.
0: Yeah, so you have two, two things. One is this kind of, I think what you just described is kind of like an ideological lock to seeing the reality. Yeah. But you also make the larger argument in the book and in the kind of associated articles that democracy, just because it's messy and it's increasingly polarized, that even if you didn't have these kind of ideological... Uh, I don't know, hangovers, that democratic states would be inevitably slow and kind of clumsy at responding to economic and financial crises. And you argue that the consequences of how people view incumbent parties, therefore, and the perception of state capacity, in general, um, starts to go down and the cost of the bailouts go up. And this is where I think for me, and I'll go ahead and redefend my new title of your book. This is where I think that that the implications of this are so much greater because what you argue for is people's fundamental perception of state capacity starts to decline in this case. Can you can you kind of help us understand that dynamic a little bit?
1: Yeah. So basically great expectations means for us that the required level of performance of governments is ramping up consistently over time, that increasingly governments are expected not only to, say, stabilize the business cycle, which, you know, according to Keynes and others was essentially about ensuring that we didn't get mass unemployment again and that people didn't lose their incomes, but that increasingly great expectations mean these uh, commitments to wealth protection and promotion. Um, so, great expectations, in other words, um, raises the performance bar for incumbent governments. In and often in unrealistic ways. And the reason why people, despite in a sense getting what they want and are demanding governments do eventually, um, uh, are nevertheless deeply disappointed. The first reason is that great expectations are often deeply unrealistic. Most voters have completely unrealistic uh, understandings of the capacity of governments to act quickly and decisively in crises. As I just said, in the UK and American cases, which were quite typical, um, there was dither for months in the case of the United States, effectively about 15 months before ultimately they, they bail out Wall Street after Lehman Brothers collapses in mid-September 2008. You, you and I remember it well, Matt, because mm. Triumph was going then. Yes. Um, and uh, so that, that process essentially took that democracy with those checks and balances and its rising level of political polarisation and all of its dysfunction, uh, 15 months essentially from the early beginnings of uh, this financial crisis. So the first level of disappointment is just the yeah just the the slowness and the lack of decisiveness um, that that politics and politicians um, need in crises eventually to get their act together and to undertake the interventions that ultimately are politically absolutely required. Um, but of course, uh, financial markets move far more quickly than governments, and much wealth is destroyed. Uh, Housing prices were beginning to fall in the United States from mid-2007 slide quite quickly. Stock market prices, of course, and defined contribution pensions at at risk here uh, are collapsing. Um, You know, 50% of the value of uh, the U.S. uh, stock exchange is lost in a matter of weeks. Um, So financial markets move far more quickly. That's the first big disappointment. The second is, um, and again, um, you know, this comes back to the multiple personality and sort of conflicted uh, cognition, if you like, of voters. Um, people want bailouts for themselves and they want wealth protection for themselves, but not necessarily for everyone else. Firstly, they don't want they want protect wealth protection for themselves, but not for those Wall Street and London bankers, not necessarily fully understanding that actually they need that. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of other people, frankly, who don't want redistribution downwards either. So think about the Tea Party activists in the United States in early 2009, soon as Obama is elected, who say, we don't want downward redistribution here. All those sub, you know what, all those subprime borrowers who overborrowed in the previous five to seven year period, they, should they, just weren't, eat des- yep. they weren't deserving homeowners. They were people who were basically given credit when they never should have been. And, you know, frankly, life's tough. And why should I pay taxes to bail out these undeserving poor people who aspired to middle-class status? So there's both resentment of downward redistribution and protection as well as upward redistribution. So no one is satisfied here because of the distributional impact as well as the, the effects of delay.
0: So if this is relatively known, so, so markets, you know, you said that there's this big collapse in the market. Shouldn't the markets know the logic that the state will inevitably come in, and and shouldn't we expect, if you're right, that we should see more market stability through time because people just know that that you know it's just this it should be an endless upward trend because the state won't allow anything disastrous to happen.
1: Yeah, you sh- yeah, I guess we are a really smart, far-sighted hedge fund, uh, but of course everyone panics and. And, you know, the fact that particularly in the United States, there was an incumbent Republican uh, president, uh, also in uh, the Republican Party's in control of the White House, ideologically committed to, you know, market based solutions, anything but nationalization of the banking sector and so on. This was, you know, very difficult for governments to achieve and financial markets understood that. Of course, they wanted. I don't think they necessarily fully expected or believed that it would ultimately happen, though, because there were so many missteps along the way. And just the fear that the right wing of the Republican Party and, you know, some crazy senators could ultimately block this this massive seventy-seven. $150 150 billion dollar TARP rescue package that they ultimately passed on the second attempt, just in uh, in early October 2008, and ultimately did bail out the financial sector. This wasn't guaranteed, so Democratic politics looked very messy from the point of view of Wall Street. So maybe a few hedge funds got it right, but most people started to think. Boy, this is looking like a really big call, and we're just at, we're not absolutely sure that this administration can pull it off. And you know, yeah. Labour in the UK wasn't a lot
0: better. Yeah. Well, if, I just wonder whether the fact that they did—I don't know—it it, it the increasing increasing polarization. I think that there are some political parties now that would say, well, if it all blows up and it's not on our watch politically, that will be to our benefit in the long run. So maybe there isn't that, you know, the, the arguments that for, for the national good, we need to do this now. I think those are becoming less and less strong against kind of more parochial party interest arguments. But that's, that's yeah. a whole nother topic. I, yes. Uh, yeah. You write along these lines. I like this quote very much, and, and I, I would love for you to unpack it for us a little bit you right the effects of crises and in associated interventions also exacerbate the divergence in house prices between thriving and declining regions reinforcing the perception of voters in the latter of being left behind and their willingness to reject neoliberal policy norms and i might have added you know embrace more populist uh, economic messages can you tell us how how do the crises and these interventions actually exacerbate divergence across regions, shouldn't we see all asset price or is it just that some regions, they just don't have asset owning populaces?
1: Yeah. Well, clearly there's a lot more going on here than just the kinds of wealth effects, wealth accumulation effects and the policy commitments related to wealth we've been talking about. There is, uh, you know, various people have called the fourth industrial revolution and so on, the rise of the knowledge economy, the decline of old manufacturing sectors in big economies like the United States and the UK and elsewhere. Um, So there are all these sorts of regional uh, slash sort of sectoral inequalities emerging. Uh, The rise of education, and the rise of knowledge workers in general who are the big beneficiaries of some of these new industries including finance of course though not only finance in in big globally connected cities like london new york san francisco paris and so on and I guess, I mean, going back to where we began, I mean, we were talking about average levels of wealth and the average uh, exposure of middle-class households. Um, but of course, behind averages is hidden a lot of inequality and an increasingly rising wealth inequality above yep. all. Yeah. So wealth inequality is far higher than income inequality. It always has been the case. Um, yep. But the big accumulations of housing assets in particular, but also pension assets in, in wealthy um, cities like London or New York City. San Francisco, pension assets too are increasingly leading to large inequalities uh, of financial wealth. So um, when the government, in effect, is bailing out wealth, um, inevitably it's it's helping more people um, with wealth um, uh, in a, in a, before the crisis began. So existing levels of wealth inequality are, in a sense, um, protected, but also in some ways exacerbated by some of the policy responses. So take quanti- so-called quantitative easing, uh, one of the big innovations uh, undertaken by many central banks in the global family financial crisis, boosted asset prices incredibly successfully, financial asset prices above all. And for the top 10%, and especially for the top 1% of wealth owners uh, across advanced societies, essentially their big asset category is financial assets. So they did amazingly well from these interventions. And, you know, again, uh, many people in a depressed city like Blackpool in the UK, um, or uh, cities, um, you know, declining manufacturing cities in uh, states like Ohio in the United States um, that voted for Trump in 2016. Um, these were cities which weren't benefiting from knowledge work, uh, from uh, the influx of new companies, particularly in the services and the knowledge based sector. So often they had, they owned houses, uh, but their house prices weren't moving. House mm-hmm. prices in much of the north of England in these depressed cities simply just weren't yep. appreciating in the way that the southeast uh, clearly was. So, so when we're talking about the protection of accumulated wealth in the housing sector, you know, that's where a lot of these deeply embedded inequalities that certainly have their origins elsewhere, um, above all in the rise of knowledge work and big sectoral change, that's that's where this has really exacerbated um, these inequalities. And I think left these people looking at the bailouts in effect of wealthy people, not only bankers, but also wealthy middle class people in the Southeast in the UK, we haven't benefited from this. And, exactly. and we really need, they're the people
0: who really need the welfare state, by the way. Yeah. Let's assume, which is not a correct assumption, but let's just assume that they benefited exactly the same as a percentage of the increase of their wealth if if i'm sitting on a you know 800,000 pound flat in london yeah. or a million dollar flat in new york or in shanghai or wherever i am yep. and it's it, it would have fallen by 20% without state intervention i've just saved 200,000 or i've just increased 200,000 if i'm sitting on a yeah. Fifty thousand dollars house in Iowa in rural yeah. Iowa. Oh, so you've just saved me five hundred bucks, thanks a lot. but but it, as a consequence of that, the state's capacity to uh, have any kind of beneficiaries, to me, the things like schooling, et cetera, et cetera, goes way down because they've had to pay for your huge uh, bailout. So it 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 starts to pull apart and and under that. I think that that's what the argument is. It starts to pull apart yeah. and undermine these kind of long-held assumptions about what this is, and, and these interventions are seen as just another example of. How the coastal elites in the U.S., for example, or the southeast elites in the U.K., rigged the system to benefit their wealth accumulation. Is that is that is that? Am I putting words in your mouth? No, absolutely.
1: And and essentially in cahoots uh, with uh, parties like the British Labour Party, New Labour, which increasingly was the party of uh, that wealthy cosmopolitan globalized middle class um, that was actually big beneficiaries of those um, of those trends. And, And you know, for the yeah, for those people left behind in Blackpool, you know, the consequences of the bailouts was that basically George Osborne comes in in 2010 and imposes austerity that falls incredibly heavily and painfully on these left behind cities and communities.
0: And hence the bitter feeling of betrayal. Of yeah. those voters for, to the Labor Party and to the Democratic Party, and and then we see the, the rise, let's say, in the deindustrialized Midwest in the U.S. of an, another peeling message. Um, yes, that's right. And, and so that that's uh, and that's why I think you know the implications of your book, the consequences of your right are quite huge. And and one of the things that I think is interesting, if we want to throw into this mix. Uh, at least in the US case, and my mind's on the US right now because of the upcoming election, but in the US you have, not only do you have greater inequality of wealth across the the traditional economic classes, but because of centuries long discriminatory practices against ethnic minorities, particularly African-Americans, the wealth gap between African-Americans, even if they have large, relatively large income streams, uh, the wealth gap is still there. And so this opens up this massive cleavage, again, uh, not along traditional class lines, but along wealth lines. and And we see the middle classes that we've been talking about in the US is it's pre- predominantly, if not overwhelmingly, white middle classes hmm. where where you don't have this kind of asset owning uh, uh, group even within middle income, ethnic minority groups, and so you see a a cleavage there in their dedication to different political parties. do Do you think it applies in that situation? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the United States is the most extreme example of this where, um, I mean, the long legacy of uh, racial discrimination in the United States had very powerful effects, as you just said, on um, uh, the levels of wealth ownership uh, among uh, African-Americans, in particular in the United States. And we can see that in the statistics. Of course, that doesn't mean that there isn't a black middle class. um, And there are big black middle class neighborhoods in cities like Los Angeles and Atlanta and Washington, D.C and so on. But uh, average levels of wealth are far, far below uh, white uh, American middle class households. And um, it's also often forgotten just how discriminatory some of those New Deal era uh, policies were. Um, And also in gender terms, I mean, essentially, you know, the protection of employment in the 1930s was the protection of male employment. Yes and the protection of white male employment above all Um, and all of the housing policies that came out of the new deal often there were redlining and all sorts of other policy decisions both local um, and state level and so on a number of cases which effectively cut Um, uh, you know, many black American families out of the possibility of getting onto this wealth conveyor belt that we described right at the beginning. So layered on top of uh, all of the things we've been talking about, particularly in the United States, but not only, you know, we see these sorts of inequalities too in countries like Australia, uh, the UK, France, um, and many, many other countries where we get this layering on of... um, So, absolutely so in the book we we can't do everything in the book um yeah. uh, but uh you know we're talking about one particular cleavage an asset based wealth cleavage but certainly in particular countries like the united states we didn't focus that on that too much um in the book essentially because we wanted to make a large sort of cross country um yeah. argument um but the united states has particularly acute racial wealth divides as well which
0: which has massive political implications as well. Absolutely. So I, I, I just want to spend, or I know we're. I, I could hmm. talk all day with you, which we've done <laughs> several times in our lives, but I, I don't want to take up more time than 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 you've most generously given. So I want to just talk a little bit because we've talked a lot about the protection of downside risk from these assets, but also there should be pressure to preserve and grow status quo assets. Um, and so it seems to me, and, and you have written about this in other places, but- you could see politically this working out that you have this asset holding class that's politically powerful. They would very strongly oppose new house building schemes, for example, because the last yeah. thing they would want is massive new house building because it would decrease the, the, the value of their assets. So there's not only this kind of protect me from the downside risk, but it's almost like, I have mine now, so I'm gonna pull up the drawbridge And I don't want more people coming in because more people coming into home ownership would mean that my asset becomes less valuable or the pressure on the price going up would become more valuable. I guess you'd also see less pressure towards antitrust laws because to the extent that I have my pension and I'm invested in a, let's say a tracker fund and I have all these tracker funds with these big companies that keep ticking over mass amounts of profit because they're essentially monopolies or duopolies or oligopolies or however you want to see it. And this is, you know, I, I spoke earlier in another podcast with Thomas Philippon about his book about the de- decline of competition in the US. You could see this as fueling that as well. Could you not? I mean, you, you, this, this has implications not only on protection on the downside, I guess, but it has real political implications on a whole host of other things that the state could do to promote status quo asset growth. Yeah. I mean, I guess as as political scientists, I mean, Jeff
1: and my beef with economists is that they often say, look, you know, we we really need uh, to get off this conveyor belt of government, you know, intervention and protection um, as a result of financial crises, or we really need to impose much more stringent uh, competition policy on uh, the tech sector in particular. They become quasi-monopolists and they're extracting rents and and shutting down innovation uh, in the rest of the economy and so on. But I think you're absolutely right um, that what this argument tends to ignore ignore the deep and, as we've argued, you know, pretty extensive uh, widespread middle class interests and particularly Certain aspects of the middle class here—we're not suggesting that the middle class is some kind of monolithic lump uh, sure. with, again, uh, you know, homogeneous interests here. But the upper middle class, again, highly connected with the, the knowledge sector, deeply embedded in the Silicon Valleys of the world, um, in the financial sector, and big beneficiaries. This helps both their income and their wealth. So they have a vested interest in protecting these sectors, and therefore, you know, you could you could understand why a number of these kinds of voters might not be particularly happy about you know proposals to break up Amazon or Or Google, or whatever it might be, or to impose very strict uh, levels of competition uh, in this sector. As regards NIMBYism um, in the household, uh, I mean, we see again, and you know, some of the worst examples of this in the United States, uh, places like San Francisco, uh, with horrific house prices, and which are which are actually threatening middle class status um, Mm. in in a number of these really expensive parts of uh, big American, European, and other cities. Sydney is another case, Melbourne, where I'm living, in Australia. So this is getting so extreme that, uh, yes, I mean, this uh, these efforts to protect the value of assets clearly is not just in the form of, you know, catastrophic financial crises that we focused on in the book, but local level housing initiatives, essentially, that block development. Uh, so NIMBYism is pretty well entrenched in a lot of these areas. I, sh- I should just add that this is also linked to what we were just discussing, uh, that is racial divides. And Mm. There's been a lot of interesting work done which suggests that this nimbyism is not just driven by sort of p- supply housing supply concerns but also because you don't want certain kinds of people moving into your neighborhood in yeah. the way that for example in post-war los angeles and a number of northern cities in the united states we saw a massive influx of african-american in in particular and and later on uh, latinos into uh, formerly white middle-class neighborhoods that had these kinds of detrimental effects not only on house prices um, but also on uh, you know perceived community cohesion and these sorts of things.
0: So that's a great way, I think, to package up the final part of your argument. And again, why I think it's an important kind of body of work that you're putting together. So thank you very much for sharing. But I want to now just put forward one possible alternative. I'm not even sure if it's an alternative because it, it may be consistent with what you're saying or maybe helping to fuel this, what you're saying. And I know that you're not convinced by this argument. And I must admit that I've been reading a lot of history lately. So my mind is kind of in the mode where I'm trying to see huge macro trends across lots of time. So it might be too simplistic, but let me, let me at least put it into some sort of argument. And I'd just love to hear your response. It may be that as humans, that we, we don't like risk and we don't like uncertainty, And through time, we have attempted to put together governance structures to take away some of that uncertainty. So you could see that maybe the state or a state or some version of a state started a long time ago to protect us from the cost of anarchy, right? So we, you know, we, we don't want to uh, grow crops because if we grow crops, some marauding band might come and take what we have, et cetera. So we, we gave us safety from kind of non-legitimate uses of force or, or in a Habesian kind of manner. We gave the monopoly of force to the state because even though the state could be repressive, it was better than the state of nature. So then the state started to provide some buffer maybe from famine. So if we look at the early states uh, in uh, in Sumer and things like this, one of the reasons that they had for legitimacy is that when you had a poor harvest, they could move food around a bit. And this gave you protection against the consequences of extreme weather effects. And this was part of the way that they got kind of justification and led to greater ability to control and access data and to build the kind of bureaucratic nature and capacities of the state. We zoom forward, then then the state starts to provide education for children. So maybe this takes away some economic uncertainty in my old age, because if my kids are educated, they can provide for me in my old age, because they have some sort of future for themselves. So that risk of bad things happening to my kids and bad things happening to me in old age gets taken away by the state then maybe the state starts to provide me protection from laws through regulatory regimes, protecting us the food we eat from, you know, I, I wanna make sure that if I go and buy food, it's not gonna poison me. I don't have to rely on the market to say, you know, for the word to, to pass that food from this company will kill you. I, I don't have to worry about it. If it's in the store, it's safe. So that it takes away the risk of kind of poisoning. The state will, if I'm unable then for economic reasons to provide myself food and shelter, we create the welfare state. So at least my kids and I aren't gonna starve on the streets if I can't or will not find work. Then the state starts to provide protection of my savings if they're lost in a bank fail. Because I think that you know, if, I, if I put money in the bank, really it, the bank should be a safe place to put my money and the state should make sure that it's a safe place. Oh, and by the way, the state should provide me with a pension because if, this, if, I, if I don't do the right things, maybe I don't want to be, do we really want old people starving to death in a cold flat somewhere? Oh, and by the way, if I get sick, I want the state to provide me health care because I, I want to have that, you know, the risk of getting sick and all of these bad things going away, the state will provide for that. And now maybe the state protects me from all banking and financial system collapses. So I want the state to protect my pension that I'm investing in. I want it to go up, I'm happy if it goes up, but if it goes down, for God's sakes, more than a little bit, the state protect me. And now with COVID, you know, old rules might've said that the state should have this public health role, but it's not the public health role that the state has taken on. Now the state's saying, we're gonna ensure employment and business survival. We're going to ensure that after corona, after the virus, things can go back to where they were, and we're going to protect people's businesses as much as we possibly can, and their employment. And in the past, I would have argued that the state's responsibility might have stopped at, you know, providing public health. Maybe later, and, and if we zoom forward a bit in the future, maybe the state's responsibility is to provide me with a certain level of dignity and happiness through some sort of uh, universal income. Mm-hmm. That I'm not going to be happy if I have an undignified or unhappy life, because the state should take away the risk of this, and that's why I need a minimal income. Maybe the state should also provide me with all the digital tools necessary for me to be plugged into the new world, because I don't want to take the risk of being left behind in the digital world. Maybe, in fact, the state should provide me the treatments that I need to extend my life. (laughs) And to augment my life, and to augment my mind, and things like that, because if I get left behind in that race, and I don't want to have the risk of not having, you know, not living for, for two hundred years or one hundred and fifty years, or becoming kind of almost immortal. So if just, the state doesn't if the state doesn't do that then only the, ultra-rich only will the have ultra rich only the ultra rich will and so the democratic pressures will be there. I yeah. just wonder if we're looking at all the proximate causes for the protection of our wealth and I, and I think that the, your argument is massively convincing but I just wonder do do you think it's part of this larger trend or could be
1: Yeah so I think AOC, the American politician on the left uh, in the United States would have would have agreed with much of what you just said except the host, possibly the last one on the sort of <laughs> genetic cognitive manipulation but would probably you know think about the appropriate role of the state at least in a in a sort of normative sense as uh, something along the lines that you just described of course most republicans including many of their voters of course would recoil in horror at the kind of linear projection of uh, the sort of ever encroaching role of the state in our daily lives and in, in Um, What Ulrich Beck, the German sociologist, called the risk society. So this is the kind of risk society argument that increasingly what humans or what what people, particularly in advanced economies and societies, want is essentially a nanny state, um, as Margaret Thatcher would have called it. Now, obviously, um, it hasn't in practice been quite as linear as you described, although if, you know, if we were to sort of zoom out, uh, you know, the picture from Mars and, uh, you know, the last 50 or 100 years, I guess, of human history is pretty short in terms of, uh, mm. you know, the, the history of the universe. So so a kind of very macro level view might give a, a summary of the kind you just described, but I guess we understand it in slightly less linear terms in that there really was an attempt in the early 1980s, and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, I think, were crucial here, picking up on some themes that people like Friedrich Hayek in the mid 20th century articulated, particularly in his road to serfdom argument, the argument that if the state increasingly panders to these kinds of uh, expressed desires on the part of its citizens, it's the slippery slope uh, to uh, to totalitarianism, uh, that you, you have to draw the line quite early on in that list of state functions that you described. Otherwise, we're all doomed and we'll end up essentially you know, as many Republican politicians in the United States would describe it as some kind of Marxist hell, uh, back to the Soviet Union mid 20th century. So that's where Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were coming from. And they said, look, we have to get off this conveyor belt. We really need to send strong signals to people that they can't expect the state to nanny them in every aspect of their life, to remove all that risk. Without risk, we don't get innovation, growth, and all of those things that you would have talked about with Philippon and and others. And and for the good of society, and ultimately for the the personal income and wealth benefit of its citizens and, and the governments that are elected to pursue the interests or to fulfill, um, you know, the responsibilities of government in, in democracies, we really have to convince people to get off this conveyor belt uh, that the nanny state is engaged in and that you just, you know, very well described, essentially, because it's, it's a horror to these people. So Thatcher and Reagan tried, they said, and the re, the way we'll do it is we'll give everyone a stake in this private market capitalism, in private wealth. We'll privatize state-owned housing assets in the UK, give people a stake in their own personal home and they will vote conservative for the rest of their lives or they'll vote Republican uh, in the case of um, the United States. So that was the idea, it was half right. The other way that I, I think that the linear story doesn't quite work people are often quite risk embracing and they quite like this new slightly scary roller coaster of privatized markets and and growing risk when things are going wonderfully well when house prices are booming sure. when globalization is working when there's no pandemic in sight they go yeah i'm all in this because you know my my house price just rose by 50,000 pounds or dollars last year i'm doing fantastically well and i've got a new job in mckinsey or j p morgan or whatever so people's understandings of the role of government are asymmetrical often. That is, they embrace risk on the upside and they embrace low levels of government intervention on, when markets and, and everything is working fantastically well, but they revert to this argument. So they're deeply hypocritical and governments are also are deeply hypocritical and, and engage in what we call Ideological strain. It's quite striking how, in the GFC and in the, this latest COVID crisis, it's these neoliberal governments that are bending over backwards to give people an extra $600 a week in unemployment benefits in the United States early on. You know, more um, you know intervention that goes far beyond everything that we previously experienced it just gets ramped up more and more in every in every crisis. So Australia, the UK, and the United States are engaging in levels of intervention that are deep inconsistent with their broad sort of neoliberal trend taken and and doctrines taken from Thatcher and Reagan. So they're just incredible hypocrites they' they're, they're um, and, and voters are too they're they're sort of capitalists in in the up cycle and they revert to what what I would call crisis socialism in the down cycle. Yeah. how we quite reconcile
0: this I I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I would say is it's a function of democratic systems, right? And, hmm. and so they're going to they're going to respond to the democratic pressures, and and through time with a different understanding. I mean, it's quite a hard democratic message to say to people. Sometimes you just have to burn, and if you all burn, then that's just that's just the way it is. Because if we don't do that, ooh, we're on this way to this uh, future scary place that might just happen if I don't uh, protect your house. If I take steps to make sure that you're not out on the street now, in a hundred years we might be in a totalitarian nightmare. That's a hard yeah. democratic argument to make. So, Well, and uh, Hayek was fundamentally wrong. You know, if you don't deliver
1: a sufficient level of social protection, you get this reversion to populist uh, and mob politics that we're seeing far too much of now. So Hayek, I believe, was deeply wrong uh, about these trajectories. Now, you have to draw the line somewhere, but
0: not where he drew it. Yeah. I like to end on Hayek was deeply wrong. That's great. <laughs> I'm I betraying a little bit of my prejudice there. So, look, Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a delight. I could talk on forever. Just uh, people who have been listening to the other episodes know the last question I have is uh, Have you read, watched, or listened to anything lately that you recommend to the listeners? It can be fiction, nonfiction, whatever you like. So, it's something to uh, recommend to our Triumph community and beyond.
1: Well, because the Triumph community uh, you know, um, are such a, a good set of readers and intellectuals, I, I'm going to recommend uh, Ryan Enos's book, The Space Between Us, 2017. So it's a couple of years old now, but Enos, E-N-O-S, it's an absolutely fantastic book that touches on some of the issues we've been talking about. It looks at, as he calls it, space is a demagogue. Um, investigates the way that spatial inequalities and spatial divisions between races, between classes and so on, actually increases uh, division in politics and society in really quite fascinating ways. And he explores, it's one of the best social science books I have ever read. He explores using multiple different methods and experiments. Uh, and I think in, in really interesting ways about the way in which spatial inequalities, and this is deeply relevant to housing politics, of course, spatial inequalities have such powerful and ongoing implications uh, for our politics and society. So that's the book I, I would recommend. Um, I Just finally, I'd say uh, watch My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. Oh. It's a fantastic documentary. If you haven't seen it, it's... Um, you know, people need to stop worrying less about their house, their pension, their stock market assets, and every other aspect of middle class rat race competitive life and uh, start thinking more about nature. And I think re-engaging a bit with nature and the wonders of planet A, you know, is is absolutely crucial and perhaps one of the means by which we might get away from this kind of um, rat race politics that I've been talking about with you today
0: absolutely agree and i wholeheartedly recommend the octopus teacher as well it's a meditation on mm. much more than uh, octopi
1: yeah uh, thank you pulse. very much
0: andrew thank you matt you've been listening to triumph connects a podcast for the triumph community i'm matt mulford and i really hope you enjoyed this episode make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of triumph connects until then i wish you all the very best